0: And then the Lord started doing things in my own heart. I began to realize that I was blind in my own life. When I accepted the Lord at the age of 15, I put the past behind me and I went on with the future, you know. And because the Lord says that in the word of God. But I also realized that I buried my past. Not because of my identification with Jesus, but because I was ashamed of my past. And the Lord began to prick my heart and say, Stephanie, before you begin to see who you really are in me, I have to touch those areas of your life. And I said to the Lord, Lord, no. You know, I just want to forget my past. I want to go on with my life. I want to, you know, tell everybody about the victorious life that we can have in Jesus. But he says, Stephanie... If you don't know who you are, how can you show anybody who they are in Christ? And I began to let the Lord do a healing in my life. And I began to not realize that it wasn't just um, a healing, but it was also healing of memories. That I had memories that I had buried deep, deep, deep down because I was ashamed of them. And I realized that as soon as I let it crop up, that my whole image of myself would crumble and I would lose my faith, I thought. But I didn't realize what Christ had intended for me. See, I was born in Korea and uh, I was born right after the Korean War, and, and I don't know if some of you older men were involved in the Korean War or not, but it was a UN war, so a lot of countries came to fight in Korea. It was a short war. It only lasted four years. But it divided Korea into two countries, the North and the South, and families were divided. It was a civil war. It was brothers against brothers and fathers against sons and families against Families And they were divided. Some were still stuck in the north and some are still in the south. And when war comes, there's orphans everywhere because their parents are killed or um, they lose contact with the parents when they're uh, running away. And another thing that happened was there were a lot of mixed blood children that were born because of the foreign soldiers that had come to Korea. And I was one of them. Now, you look at me and you say, oh, well, you look so Oriental. I mean, how can they tell that you were, had foreign blood in you, you know? When, when I'm with the foreigners, I look real Oriental. When I'm with the Orientals, I look real Western, you know? I mean, I just don't fit in anywhere. <laughs> And uh, when I was younger, I had lighter hair, my eyes were bigger, and I just sort of stood out and I had curly hair. Orientals don't have curly hair. And it just was like I couldn't hide myself in a group of people and people not to know who I was or what I was. See, in that time in Korea, infanticide was rampant in that country because babies were being born everywhere and they had no means of taking care of those little ones. Now you sit there and say, my goodness, how could they be that way? Hey, we live in a country where children are screaming every day, and we don't hear them. I find that people can sear their minds and seal their hearts and their ears and justify what is right and what is wrong. When the word of God says that it is a sin. And I don't want you in any way to sit there and think that Koreans are cruel people. God has done a work in the lives of Koreans, and it is one of the lighthouses in the world today, Korea is. But there went through a time when Korea lived in darkness, when they lived in deception, and when they lived in poverty, and they didn't know what they were doing. And I was born in Korea at that time. I don't know why I survived, except I do believe that God had his hand on me. See, in the word of God, it says that the Lord knows us in secret. He knows us before we're conceived in our mother's womb, and he loves us. And you and I, the Lord knew us even from the foundation of the universe, and he had a plan for us. But it also says in the word of God that when we decide to sin, that we have to live out the consequence of our sin. And I have found that in my walks and in counseling with people, so often when someone decides to sin out of selfishness, that a lot of times it's not them that suffer except at the end when they stand before the Lord. But a lot of times the result of the sin is the innocent ones that's involved in their lives. Have you noticed that? In a divorce, who is hurt the most? Are you as the parent or your children that have to watch that divorce? When we decide to sin and have a child out of wedlock, is it you that is hurt the most? Or is it the child that is born out of wedlock? In any sin, many times, it's the innocent ones that comes from us that suffer. See, I was born out of sin. I was born out of lust. And the two people that came together and formed me, I'm sure if they saw in the future what I had to go through, maybe they would have thought twice, but they didn't. But that doesn't mean that God didn't have a plan for me. And that doesn't mean that God didn't have a purpose for my being. But for seven years, I was what they call a street child. I lived, ate, and slept on the streets of Korea. There was not orphanages at that time. World Vision had just come in after the war, but they could not take care of all the abandoned children that were on the street. I have a funny feeling, and I believe that my mother that gave birth to me loved me because for some reason I wasn't put to death. And I was nurtured and cared for to the age that she couldn't hide me anymore. Or she could not go on with her life anymore with me as her daughter. So she took me out into the street and left me there. Not because she didn't love me, but I think in her, in her human way of thinking, she thought that was the only way she could survive and maybe the only way I could survive. But we slept under bridges. We slept behind railroad stations. We slept under railroad tracks. We ate what we could find, and in the summertime, I'd go up into the mountains. There'd be caves that I could sleep in. There were different kinds of grass, different kinds of roots, different kinds of animals. We learned to kill little field mice. We learned to kill little grasshoppers, little locusts. We had a lot of things to eat. I was not a malnutrition child. But in Korea, if you know anything about Korea, it's a little peninsula that hangs off of Siberia. You know, people think of the Orient as like Hawaii, you know, that palm trees swing everywhere and women run around in little grass skirts, you know. But most of the Orient isn't like that. (laughs) You know, Korea is a little peninsula off of Siberia, and it gets very, very cold. The winds blow strong and the snow comes early. And where do these little children go? I used to see with my own eyes little ones that were younger than me die every day around me. And it didn't faze me one bit. Death was common. I saw it all the time. But when I came out of those mountains and went into the villages and went into the towns, because I was different, not only was I an orphan, but I was also a half-breed. They had a word that they called me, and the word is Tuki, and the translation of that word means an alien devil. So from the time that I can remember, it was registered into my mind that I was worthless, that I had no value, that I had a devil in me. When you hear what you are when you're a little child, day after day after day, you begin to believe that about yourself. I believed that they could do whatever they wanted to me physically because I wasn't a person. I was unhuman. I was dirty. I was unclean. I wasn't a Korean. I had no name, I had no identity to say that I was a Korean. I knew that I could never get an education because I didn't have a name. I didn't have a family that was signed for me. I knew that when I grew up that I could never get married. I knew that I could never get a job if I survived that on the streets. I had no future for me. But that didn't bother me so much. And even the fact that I didn't have a roof over my head, that I didn't have three square meals a day, or that I didn't even wear proper clothing, that didn't bother me. But what I lived with continually was the physical and the mental abuse that was given to me every day that I was out on the street. One time I was caught by a group of men, and I don't know for what reason. Maybe I had stole something I used to steal, so if any of you guys are missing anything from your purses, the Lord has broken me of that habit. <laughs> but I used to steal to survive. That doesn't make it right, does it? Sin is a sin. But one time I was caught, and they took me to a building that was as probably as tall as this building, but the ceiling or the roof had been bombed by the war, and they hadn't fixed it yet. And in Korea at that time, we used to have rats that were big as cats. And they were mean, they were vicious, and if they were hungry and hurt in any way, they attacked anything that came in front of them. This building was known in the town to be the home of the rats. They took me and another little girl that they found out on the street. And I'm sure that little girl was only about three or four years old at that time. And they took us and they threw us into that building as live baits for those rats. And for the first time, something welled up within me like a protection for that other little girl. And I remember I said to myself, We're not going to die. We're going to survive. And the little girl says, but I can't, I can't, I can't. And I saw the rats eat away at that little child. And let me tell you, I had lived on the streets for almost six years by this time. I had tasted many types of bitterness and many types of abuse. But for the first time, I knew what hate was. I hated those men with a passion. And something welled up within me that was the taste of bitterness. And I swore at the age of six that no matter how much they hurt me physically, they weren't going to get to me. I wasn't going to let anyone see me beg for mercy. I wasn't going to let anyone see that they could do whatever they wanted, but no way was they going to touch my heart, I thought. Not knowing that at the age of six, I was dead emotionally. I had died emotionally. But somehow, and now I know this day that it was the grace of God, and it was the angel of God, someone came to that building and rescued me. And for a long time, I used to wonder why I survived. There were situations I was tied to a water wheel at one time and continually dunked, hoping that I would die. I was taken to a rice paddy another time and buried alive. Another time they threw me into a well and left me there for three days. And every one of those situations, I should have died. But someone was there every time to rescue me. It might have been a family member that didn't want to identify with me, but that watched me from a distance, I don't know. But I'd like to believe that it was the hand of God on my life. When I was seven years old, a cholera epidemic swept through Korea, killing hundreds and thousands of people. And when you're a street child living on the streets, you're one of the first ones to catch cholera. And I caught cholera, and I was dying on the streets. And World Vision had sent out workers out into the street, and they told the workers, you pick out the little infants or want children that are one, two, and three, and just leave the rest because we don't have room for them. We we can't take care of all of them. And there was a Swedish World Vision nurse by the name of Iris Erikson. And she was responsible for a certain section of the town that I lived in. And she said she saw me laying with rest of the garbage and rubble. And she said it was like God spoke to her and said, That girl has a purpose in life. I want you to rescue her. But she said to God, God, she's almost dead. And besides, she seems older than what, you know. And and she was arguing with God there right on the street. And God says, you take her home with you. She picked me up, took me home, and nursed me back to life. Let me tell you something. When I was dying on the streets with cholera, I was happy. I was seven years old. I had reached the prime of my life. (laughs) I was ready to die because I knew what my future was and I knew what my concept of myself was. I hated myself. I hated everything that was around me and especially the people around me. I didn't want to be abused anymore. I didn't want to constantly have to deal with the mental abuse that I got every day. And I was happy I was dying. But when I woke up two weeks later and opened my eyes and saw that lady staring down at me, she said, I let out a scream that was indescribable. I was so angry and so frustrated. But she kept responding to me and saying, it's okay. You don't have to go back out into the street. We'll take care of you. We'll find a place for you. I stayed with her just for a few months, and then she did find a place for me in a World Vision orphanage. But I was the oldest child in that orphanage. And because I was the oldest child in that orphanage, my job was washing all the diapers. We didn't have pampers back then. We didn't even have washing machines. We didn't have dryers. We didn't even have a local well. Our local laundromat was the river about you know, on the edge of town. And in the wintertime, you had to go there and chisel the ice off of the river and make a little bitty hole and wash them as best you could. You know, the washing machine was a big white stick that you used to beat the clothes with, and hopefully, you know, all it did was put holes in it, but that's about all it did. And I didn't mind that. I didn't mind it because I had now a a roof over my head. I had three square meals a day. I had people that took care of me. Even though the people in the orphanage, the workers, they were Christians and they cared for me, but they could not love me. You know why? I was a half-breed. I was a mixed blood. And it had been ingrained even in the Christians that I wasn't clean, that I wasn't pure. And I didn't mind that so much. But what I minded was knowing that every evening when I had to go out of that gate, we had a big compound with big gates and big walls and a gate that protected the children from the outside world. But as soon as you went out of that gate, I didn't get physical abuse anymore, but it was continual mental abuse. String of children that would follow behind me, calling me names until I got to the river and hassling me the whole time I was down there, then hassling me all the way back. But I liked being in that orphanage because for the first time, I found something that I could love. I loved children. And these little ones were tiny and helpless. And the workers were too busy to really love each one of them individually. But I remember spending hours holding little ones in my arms and loving them when I was nine years old, um, something exciting happened in the orphanage. Ms. Erickson came back and she said, oh, these foreign people are coming to the orphanage tomorrow and uh, they're going to adopt a baby boy. And so we were all excited. You know, we were excited for anyone that came along and took a baby because we knew that they had a future, And so I remember spending the whole day scrubbing the babies and making me as pretty as possible, you know, and put little ribbons in little girls' hair. And, I mean, you know, those poor little orphans, you couldn't really make them too pretty, you know. But we did it as best as we knew how. And the next day we waited with anticipation for this foreign couple to come. And let me tell you, in the World Vision Orphanage, I had gone to church, I had heard the stories of the Bible, and I had heard the story of David and Goliath. And when I saw that man walk through that gate, I thought Goliath had come back to life. (laughs) Only foreigners I had seen up to this time was Miss Erickson, and I had seen soldiers on the street, American soldiers. And I was fascinated by American soldiers. You know why? It was a father identity. I constantly looked at those soldiers and wondered if one of them was my father. So I watched that man. And I saw something come out of that man that I had never, ever seen in any other man. You know when you see compassion, true compassion, you know it. I saw that man with this big, big, huge hands lift up each baby, and I knew that he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw something come out of him, I saw tears running down his face, and I knew that if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. He saw me by the corner of his eyes. Now let me tell you, I was almost nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a tiny, scrawny little thing. I had worms in my body, lice in my hair, boils on my skin, scars on my body. I was not a pretty little thing. He saw me by the corner of his eyes, and he came up to me and rattled away in English, and I looked up at him, and he took that huge hand of his, and he laid it on my face, and it seemed to cover my whole face and the half of my body, kind of like, you know? Uh, I mean I'm sure I'm exaggerating but that's what it felt like and it felt so good and inside I was saying oh keep it up don't let your hand go but you know no one had shown that kind of affection for me and I didn't know how to respond. I yanked that hand off my face and I looked up at him, and I'm sure my eyes came to where his knee was, and I spit on him. Why would a child that needs love so desperately bad turn around and spit on the one person that seemed to love her? Because I had no emotions inside, I was dead. If you don't believe that God is alive and that God is a God of miracles, listen to this. Here's a couple that didn't have any children. They had been married for 11 years, and the Lord had blessed them with a child. They came to Korea, the land of opportunity. They could have taken 10 home, and the orphans would have clapped for them, you know? My mother was watching from across the courtyard, and my dad was standing in front of me. At the same moment, God spoke to them and said, that's the one for you. I mean, what would you have done? I know what I would have done if God had told me that little brat that just spit on me was the one for me. I would have said, God, you got up on the wrong side of bed today. (laughs) I mean, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, my husband and I, we put in our papers for adoption about a year or so ago. And, you know, they have lists of, you know, what type of child you want, you know, Caucasian, you know, uh, Indian, a little bit of Indian, you know, on and on. And mental attitudes, emotional problems, no, you know, physical handicaps, no, you know, just on and on. I mean, we were asking for this perfect angel that a 100 million other people wanted. And afterwards, Daryl and I sort of giggled, and I said to Daryl, Daryl, if my parents had been handed that paper, they would have never adopted me. But they listened to God. They went home, they prayed about it, and I'm sure they even probably questioned God too. But they came back the next day and took me home with them. It was a beginning of an adventure that is still going on today. They were missionaries. They didn't have much money. They lived out in the country. They had no running water, no electricity. But I had never been in anything so beautiful in all my life. I had never seen pane glass windows. I had never seen curtains on the windows. They had little furnitures that you sat on and that you slept on. I mean, all my life, when I lived out in the streets, I slept with tens of children to keep warm. And in the orphanage, I slept with hundreds of children because there was no room, and you just had a space about this big that was your spot, you know? All of a sudden, I had my own little room. I had my own bed. I didn't know what to do with the bed, but I had a bed. And they took me to the marketplace, and they bought me two little dresses, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was pink and white polka-dotted and a blue and white polka-dotted. And they cleaned me up. Mom said it took about four or five days to begin to see that I did have a color of skin besides black, and that I had, they had to get rid of the lice in my hair, and finally the only way they could get rid of it was to shave me, and I walked around bald for a while, and I had boils on my head and on my body that needed to be healed. They had to get the worms out of my system, and those took a few months. But then after a while, on the outside, I began to look normal. I began to grow hair. But the scars on my body began to disappear, and I went to school, and all of a sudden I was an American, we went back to Korea as my, because my parents were missionaries. And I found that I didn't want anything to do with the Koreans. I began as much as I could to forget the Korean language. When I went to church with my parents, I would sit in the back, and when the Korean would come up to talk to me, I'd leave the church and wait out in the Land Rover. It was like I wanted nothing to do with the Korean side of me. I was an American. And I began to develop on the outside, make friends. And my parents thought everything was okay. And just to please them, I even said the salvation prayer at a very young age. And I was baptized in the ocean at a very young age. And in my own way, I did love God. I wanted to serve Him. I wanted Him to be pleased with me. But see, there was a blockage there. Because I couldn't love myself. I couldn't see myself for who I really was. Because I didn't understand what Calvary really was. But they saw that when I came to a certain relationship with people, I had problems. I couldn't relate. And every time when I talked about myself, I talked about myself from a negative aspect. Never from a positive aspect. When I was about 15, I think it was the summer before my 15th birthday, I remember one night my dad came into my room and he had been praying for me. You know, kids, you know when your parents are praying for you, right? You know, I remember my husband used to say that when he was going through a couple of years of uh, questioning of the Lord, you know, he used to come home at evening sometime. He always knew that his dad had been praying for him. And I knew that my dad was praying for me. And he came into my room and he sat down on the edge of the bed. And he said, Stephanie, I love you and I'll never stop loving you. I adored my dad. But he said, Stephanie, there comes a time when we as parents have to release our children to the Lord. He said, Stephanie, you've said the prayer of salvation and you say that you're a Christian. And you've been pleasing to us. But he says, Stephanie, there's something there that needs to be broken. And only Jesus can break it. And I said, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. I'll be fine. But he began to realize that from the 14th to the 15th birthday, that I was beginning to retreat from people. See, from, from out to the time I was 9 to 14, I was trying so hard to prove myself to people, and I was the, you know, the bubbly one in a crowd, the one that always smiled, the one that always did everything right. But all of a sudden, at the age of 14 or so, I began to retreat from people because I couldn't deal with what I was feeling anymore. And I know today that I, if I had gone on that way... Most likely, I would have the suicidal state. But dad says, Stephanie, you know the Bible. And he says, I don't need to quote it or say any more scriptures to you. But he says, Stephanie, think about Jesus. He was born to a virgin. Who believes anyone is born to a virgin? But he was. He was born in a stinking stable. Stephanie? That's way worse than what you were born in. He went back to his hometown and his people turned their backs on him and said, nothing good comes out of this town. His own people rejected him. He said, Stephanie, even in ministry, the ones that flung to him didn't come to him because they saw him as the answer for the world. But they came to him for what they could get out of him. And even his disciples that he poured his life into for three years and gave everything he had of. When it came to true sacrifice of when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asked the three to pray with him, they couldn't even stay awake to pray with him. And when he hung on the cross to die, bearing my sin, bearing your sin, the ones that he gave his life for turned their backs on him. He says, Stephanie, you sit there holding things from your past because you think you have a right to. You have been hurt. You have been despised. You have been rejected. You have been abused. But he says, Stephanie, there stands a man that knows everything. He didn't die on that cross because he was sympathetic for you. He didn't look down from heaven and he said, oh, there's that poor little girl. I'm going to go down and die on the cross for her just so I can show her how much I love her. You know why he died on that cross? So that he could identify with me. You need to understand the difference between sympathy and identification. When we deal with people that are hurting, that person knows when you're sitting beside him because you're sympathetic towards him, or they know because you're sitting beside him because you identify with them. Jesus hung on that cross because he wanted to identify with me. In 2 Corinthians, it says that he became sin. You know what that says to me? It says he became me. It's like he came into my body and he knew everything that I was feeling and going through because he'd been there too. That night for the first time, I began to realize that I was a sinner. I had blamed everyone and every situation for my sin. But I realized that according to the word of God. It doesn't matter what others had done to me. That the final choice was me to choose. That I had to be the one to repent with my mouth. That I had to be the one to face Calvary. And say Lord I, I nailed myself on that cross. And when I am born again I am a new creation. And for the first time, I said that prayer. I said, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for all these sins that I've been carrying. And all those feelings that I've been carrying, I give them to you, Lord Jesus. Let me tell you something. I was almost 15 years old. And from the time that I can remember, from the time that I was in that building with those rats, I had never cried again. I never let anyone see a tear. The Lord broke my emotions that night, and I began to cry, and the Lord began to cleanse me and to heal me. From that moment to this day, it has been a continual healing of the Lord. You know, healing of memories, healing of, of the past, healing of, of, of the broken heart. A lot of times, it's not an overnight experience. It's a gradual step that the Lord takes us through. Can I say something to you, to the ones of you that deal with people that are broken? Make sure that you don't rush God. Make sure that you don't rush God because God has a timing and a purpose for every situation. When we see someone that is possessed or we see someone that is bound, you know, we have that inkling that if I pray for him enough, God's going to lose him. God is going to lose him. But in his own time and in his own place, and for you, your job is to identify with that person and continually uphold him before the Lord. Your job isn't trying to prove what God is or who God is, because God can prove himself. I found in my life, I've had people come and say to me, Stephanie, you need this and this and this and the deliverance, and I know it. But I've also known that God deals with me when he's ready and he delivers me when my heart and my mind can register with that. If deliverance comes and the heart and the mind cannot register with it, we leave more room for attack. But there are some of you in this building today that have been hurting, that have been bleeding, that have been blaming everyone else for your life. And you haven't been willing to let go. Some of you have even come from good homes, good parents, people that love you and care for you. And you haven't gone through all those mess. But there is still something there that holds you back from identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. You love him. You serve him. You come into his house every week. But when a problem comes before you, all of a sudden you reject the one you say that you love. One key that I've learned in my miscarriages, I believe there's a spiritual warfare there. And I believe the Lord wants me to be victorious over that. I don't believe that it's the Lord's will that I should lose those children. But I'm doing it. But you know what? Can I say something to you? One thing the Lord has proven to me over and over again is that each time he doesn't show me why I'm losing those children, but he tells me, Stephanie, do you love me? It's a heart relationship. Yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I know I'm going through a spiritual battle, but you know what? I know there's victory at the end. I don't live with hopelessness of thinking it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. And there are many things that I do not understand while I go through those. But I know I have an identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And my love for him does not fail because of the circumstances around me. I may be on sinking sand but I know the hand is there to lift me up and put me on a solid rock. That's the basis that I live on from day to day. There are still things that my husband has to deal with me about my past. There are still feelings of rejection that I go through from time to time. And I find when I share like I do this morning, continually there's attacks in my mind and on me physically, but I have learned to understand it now. I didn't for a long time. I have been bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. You have been cleansed by the blood of the land. You have been crucified on the cross with Christ. You have been born again by the resurrection of Christ. You are a new creation. The old man is dead. The old past is dead. Those, those abuse that you received are dead. The feelings of inadequacy, of, of rejection, of, of whatever you have gone through, they're dead when you identify with Christ. That is the beginning of healing. I have heard that if you love with the Christ love, you become healthier. But if you love to gain love, you become sick. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're coming today to take communion. With what kind of heart are you going to come? Is it a ritual that you do? Or is it that you come knowing who you are in the Lord Jesus? And knowing that he's here today to heal you. To heal you even if it's the beginning stage, we have to start somewhere. We have to make a conscious effort with our mind and a conscious effort with our will and say, I will to glorify Jesus. Can we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we just thank you so very much. Lord, I thank you so much that you have engraved us into your hand. Lord, that your arm of protection goes around us and you say to the enemy, you have no authority over this child because this child is mine. I have put my stamp of approval on this child. And Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you will just come down and work on the hearts and the minds of the ones that are sitting here this morning, Lord. Father, Lord, take away the blindness from our eyes and take away the deafness from our ears. Take away the shackles from our hands that has had us bound, Lord. Lord, that has kept us going on the path that you had planned for us. Lord, that we have sat back in complacency because we've said to ourselves, how can the Lord use me because I can't even see myself for who I am? Lord, may we see ourselves through your eyes, Lord. Not that we love ourselves from a selfish love, but that we can accept who we are because of what you have done on the cross. Lord, that we can see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus and love ourselves through the heart of Jesus. Lord, how can we say that we love our neighbors? And how can we say that we love our enemies unless we know who we are and what we are? And Lord, there's no way we can know that unless we see you clearly. Unless we feel you, Lord, and we invite you by the Holy Spirit to come down now and minister in the name of Jesus. Break those bonds oh Lord I pray in the name of Jesus break those shackles in the name of Jesus break those will in the name of Jesus may we submit our hearts to you thank you Jesus Lord, may we understand what the breaking of the Lord Jesus Christ is. May we understand what his body stands for and what his blood stands for. And may we stand in identity with that, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Oh, we praise you. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Stephanie Fast. My goodness, what a wonderful message from a woman who had a a dramatic life. If you didn't hear yesterday's broadcast, you missed the beginning of a miraculous uh, testimony Mm -hmm. from Mrs. Stephanie Fast. What a story, Mike. Uh, I'd like to give just a little update on Stephanie Fast, at least share one other episode in her life. Uh, Because Mm. she was sexually abused as a child, she sustained internal injuries that prevented her from becoming pregnant. And yet she felt she was told by the Lord when she's very young that he was going to allow her to become a mother. So uh-huh. she had this promise, but still she couldn't conceive after she got married. And as we heard a few minutes ago, she just had one miscarriage after another. And the